Hello, everyone. Welcome. It is uh, my pleasure to uh, see you all joining us today. I'm Anna Ganey, Chair of Canada 2020. And I would like to begin today by acknowledging that I am joining this virtual gathering today from my home in Montreal, which is situated on the unceded lands of the Kanyankehaka or Mohawk Nation. We recognize the Kanyankehaka as custodians of the lands and waters of this place, its history as a gathering place for many First Nations and are grateful to continue adding to its rich history of exchange in person and today in this virtual setting. I would like to thank all of Canada 2020's partners without whom today's discussion would not be possible and thank you to World Wildlife Fund Canada, our partners today for this event. Today is the final in our series of post-COP discussions where we've tackled all sorts of aspects of our climate future from migration to politics, finance, activism, and beyond. If you missed them, the past three conversations are available to be viewed on our website, uh, including yesterday's uh, great chat between economist and banker Mark Carney and president and CEO of Van City, Christine Bergeron. So today, let's get to the issue at hand, which is carbon. I am thrilled to welcome uh, WWF President and CEO Megan Leslie and Vice President of Science, Knowledge and Innovation, James Snyder. Megan and James are going to take us through Canada's first ever national carbon ecosystem map and get into the weeds on the essential part uh, that carbon storage can play in our fight against climate change. So on that note, Megan and James, thank you both for joining uh, us here at Canada 2020 today. Um, and I will, hand, I will hand this presentation over to you. Thanks, Anna, for that warm welcome and the invitation to be part of this uh, post-COP conversation. What a treat. And welcome everybody who's out there. Thanks for coming to learn more about Canada's massive stores of carbon in nature and to learn a bit about why they're critical to holding global warming to 1.5 degrees. So as you heard, I'm Megan Leslie, President and CEO of WWF Canada, and I'm joining you from the home, well, it's actually my in-law's home <laughs> in Halifax, Nova Scotia, known by Mi'kmaq people as Jibuktuk and Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. And I'm very grateful to be uh, visiting and always learning about this territory. We are excited to share this groundbreaking work with you today because it has direct impact on environmental policy and reconciliation, two things about which I know Canada 2020 is very committed. The results of this groundbreaking work show the powerful role that nature can play in helping Canada meet its emission targets and helping Canada fight biodiversity loss and climate change at the same time. Okay, so quickly, I'm gonna map out what we're gonna be talking about today. We're gonna to start with getting us all on the same page. What are nature-based solutions? How are they important in that fight against habitat loss and climate change? Then I'm gonna share some insights from our pulse check survey of Canadians. It's gonna help illustrate where public attitudes and awareness around uh, these concepts are. I'll share a little bit about what WWF Canada is doing nature-based solutions fit into our 10-year plan to restore habitat and fight climate change. And then James is going to dive into this work itself, this carbon mapping work that we launched earlier this year at COP26 in Glasgow. We'll share why we did it, how we did it, what we found, the recommendations those findings have led to, and also how we can put them into action. And finally, we will have a Q&A. Uh, so hopefully we'll have some good discussion there. Let's 
get started. We have two crises before us, friends. We have the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. Now, biodiversity is just it's just a fancy word for the diversity of life on our planet, from the trees to the fish to the mushrooms and the pollinators. And there is a lot of biodiversity in Canada, but the amount is shrinking. So when we have these two crises before us, what WWF Canada did, we kind of, we regrouped to ensure that everything we do is designed to benefit both wildlife and climate. And the biodiversity and climate crises are so interconnected that we really can't act to solve one without considering the effects of that action on the other. We're also, we're on the clock. I mean, we heard this summer, UN scientists warned that we're in a code red. And since that, uh, that announcement this summer with the latest report from the UN, we've seen evidence of that code red too many times. I mean, chances are those of us uh, even here in this webinar today, we have been impacted or we know someone who's been impacted by fire or heat domes or ice melt or landslides or superstorms or floods. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a really long list. It's a really long list. And I know it seems overwhelming and it kind of is, but we have solutions. And one of the most powerful solutions that we have is nature, protecting and regenerating nature, because nature is habitat and habitat is a building block for biodiversity. Nature also stores carbon. Did you know 30% of our global greenhouse gases come from the destruction of nature? So when we, when we cut down forests or we drain our wetlands, uh, we build on our coastlines, what we're doing is we're taking carbon that's locked into the soils, the trees, the seagrasses, and we're converting that into carbon that goes up into the atmosphere. It's called the conversion of carbon. We need to stop that conversion of carbon. Like I said, 30% of our greenhouse gases globally come from the destruction of nature. So we need to figure out where are those carbon stores that we need to protect? And where could we restore carbon? Actively pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and restoring carbon into the landscape and seascapes that has also ecosystems, also habitat. For wildlife. Restoring and managing this carbon in nature is, we call it a nature-based solution, and it's being increasingly recognized in both Canada and around the world as an important strategy against climate change. And I think we, we really saw that reflected in the focus that it received at COP26. Well, at WWF, we wanted to know what Canadians' awareness and attitudes were about this idea of nature-based solutions and the nature crisis. So this summer we did a poll, we administered a poll, we called Pulse Check 2021. We partnered with Environments and we tried to take the pulse of Canadians on exactly these issues. And our results showed that while Canadians had high levels of awareness and concern about climate change and biodiversity loss, they didn't have the same level of awareness about solutions that could effectively combat these crises. In fact, a strong majority of people were unfamiliar with terms like nature-based solutions or carbon sinks and indigenous-led conservation, which is a key component to nature-based solutions. And the results also showed something that Environics called uh, 
an uncharacteristically high level of pessimism about the future, uncharacteristically high for Canadians. More than two thirds said they're extremely or very pessimistic about the future of our planet. But come on, like you're, you don't understand solutions to a problem. If it, sorry, if you don't understand solutions to a problem, then you're probably going to be pessimistic about the future, right? So the poll also showed that a strong majority of Canadians expect federal and provincial governments to take the lead when it comes to acting for nature. They are looking for leadership, but we have that high level of pessimism. It signals that people aren't, aren't seeing that action, or at least they don't even know what to look for. So what does the data tell us? It is reassuring that Canadians are aware and concerned about the nature crisis, but I mean, we all know pessimism leads to apathy. So our takeaway from this information is that we have to do a better job of showing Canadians that there are solutions, evidence-based solutions that are effective in slowing the pace of climate change and recovering biodiversity loss. We have to focus on the solutions. You might be sitting there thinking, but aren't we too late? <laughs> are we too late? Well, I am here to tell you it's not too late. And if we act now, with the right actions in the right places, there is still time to reverse the path we're on. And this is the message that's at the heart of our reversible campaign that we launched earlier this year to announce our 10 year action plan, Regenerate Canada. This is our strategic plan for the next 10 years and Regenerate Canada encompasses three ambitious goals that our work will drive toward to get the planet back on track. So we will restore at least 1 million hectares of ecosystems, that is wildlife and carbon capture and nature. We will steward or protect at least 100 million hectares of these vital ecosystems for wildlife and communities. And we will reduce carbon emissions by 30 million tons by supporting and implementing innovative nature-based solutions in carbon-rich habitats. And James is gonna present that work today about where land-based carbon is stored in Canada and it's foundational to our plan. And the amazing thing is it's all like all this work, it's all public, it's all public data. So we can provide anyone with that critical information they need to take measurable actions that drive towards improvement in climate and biodiversity at the same time. So let's talk carbon. Along with Russia, Canada is home to more than half of the world's intact nature and has globally significant amounts of carbon stored in our ecosystems. And thanks to this research we did, we now have a clear understanding of how much ecosystem carbon we're talking about and where it is stored. And this carbon has to be managed properly to avoid accelerating climate change. Destruction or disruption of these large carbon stores uh, some of which are currently under threat of development, it will release hundreds of millions of tons of carbon into the atmosphere, basically detonating a carbon bomb. Destruction or disruption of these carbon stores will also remove the ability of peatlands or forests or uh, organic soils to capture and stabilize more carbon in the future. And as we know, this is also habitat. Uh, so it's destroying and disrupting habitat at the same time. And if you think about it in Canada, I mean, why have we done protection here in Canada? We've protected it for all kinds of reasons. Uh, we've protected sensitive habitat. We've protected good examples of a particular kind of ecosystem. And we've even protected landscapes for recreation and tourism. But we've never talked about protecting for carbon. 
And with this research, we can do just this. We can transform the way we tackle climate change and the way we protect landscapes in Canada. So James will take us through this research and then we'll explore some of the key takeaways and recommendations to come from the findings, including how Indigenous rights and governance has to be front and center when we're creating action plans. Uh, I will point out, we did not do this work alone. Our colleagues at McMaster University and other researchers developed the methodology and helped with the analysis. So we're excited to present it. I'll just note before James starts, there is a Q&A box. I will be checking it throughout the presentation and during the Q&A. If you have questions, pop them in there. There's also a chat box. We've enabled the chat box. Feel free to chat. Share with us where you're joining us from. We'd love to hear from you. And feel free to share knowledge that you have, uh, research you've done, experiences you've had. Chat with your fellow attendees. The chat box is all yours. Uh, but it, that's a lot of information for me to monitor. So if you have a question, <laughs> put it in the Q&A to make sure that I see it. Uh, and now I'll hand it over to James, who's going to dive into our study. Thanks so much, Megan. Uh, delighted to be speaking with you today. I'm joining you from my home office here in Toronto, uh, territory of the Huron-Wendat, the Mississaugas of the New Credit, the Haudenosaunee, and the Nanashbek people. Um, and so speaking today about the carbon mapping project that Megan's uh, so nicely introduced. So uh, going back to 2019 uh, really was the impetus for this work. Um, where we launched our wildlife protection assessment actually was the part of the nature summit, a gathering of heads of state and uh, environmental leaders from around the world here in Canada, um, talking about the pathway to target one or more broadly, uh, our trajectory towards the convention on, on biological diversity targets uh, coming up to the 2020 timelines. And at that moment, we're looking at protecting 17% of Canada's lands um, our terrestrial ecosystems, also 10% of our, our marine areas. Um, at that kind of milestone looking ahead, we were asking the question, WF Canada asked the question, how effective are our protected areas in Canada? And are we protecting the right places for the right reasons and doing so in the right way? Um, and as part of that, we did a national assessment it's called the Wildlife Protection Assessment and identified major gaps in, in the places that we're protecting that for the most part, we aren't capturing these important habitats for species at risk. And, and, and the new concept, the one that I'm gonna be focusing on today, which is that of carbon storage. And so we brought together the best available information at that time in terms of forest biomass and soil carbon. And what we found in that analysis is that it really was lacking. It was incomplete, it was starting to become out of date. And so we knew that this was gonna be such a critically important area that the need for us to be investing in conservation actions that were going to benefit both biodiversity, including at-risk species, as well as being a critical mechanism in our fight against climate change. It's part of that climate change mitigation um, pathway that we needed to invest in a new piece of research. And so that was the impetus for our partnership with the Master University, Dr. Alan Mugansamo, Canada Research Chair in Terrestrial Ecosystem uh, Remote Sensing, and a postdoctoral fellow, Dr. Kamali Soth, um, who really worked with us the last uh, better part of two years now to create the first carbon map for Canada. So, what is carbon mapping? When I when I ask that, when I reference a carbon map, what do I mean? What we've done is brought together the best information in Canada, really from coast to coast to coast, to look at the amount of carbon that is stored in our terrestrial ecological systems. We're looking at the pool or reserve of carbon in our wetlands, 
in our grasslands, in our forests, looking both above ground and below ground to see how much carbon is there. And that is critical in terms of understanding what our future, future conservation actions might mean in terms of protection, in terms of stewardship, in terms of management, and in some cases of restoration of degraded ecosystems. Okay, so how did we do that? Well, I'd love to tell you about it. Uh, this is uh, an example of what we call machine learning, but is a predictive model that uses a whole host of different types of data. So we use, for instance, forest inventory data in BC, for instance, this really great forest inventory data that looks at the age and structure and size of our forests. Uh, in other instances, we took soil samples and peat samples uh, right across the country that are people actually on the ground taking in-situ measurements. And that's the basis of what becomes a predictive model. And in addition to that, we bring in things like satellite remote sensing and LIDAR, three-dimensional LIDAR from satellites actually gives us a sense of the height of our forests it can map for the first time a lot of these ecosystems. This is a really cutting edge piece. Some of those sensors are literally just available in the last year alone. Um, and so that has allowed us to bring all that information together into this predictive model that allows us to, to, to estimate for the first time in Canada, how much carbon is stored in our terrestrial ecological systems. The findings of this analysis show there is a massive amount of carbon in Canada. It is equivalent to 405 billion tons, 405 petagrams of carbon accumulated in our forests, our wetlands, and our grasslands. The maps that you see in front of you show some of the key patterns here in terms of where that carbon exists. Importantly, and I think one of the, the biggest uh, findings in, in this analysis is the difference between above and below ground carbon. So plant biomass, which you're seeing on the left-hand side of your screen in green, that tells us the amount of carbon that's stored in the limbs and shoots of trees and shrubs and grasses. That's 21 petagrams. It's a, it's a large amount of carbon. And that's, I think, for the most part, what most of us think of when we think about carbon storage in nature. We, trees come to mind. That's you know, kind of the, the most obvious, most evident thing. But below the ground, in the roots, and below that in our soils is where you've got the accumulation of hundreds of years. Think of all that decomposing trees, that organic matter that's part into our soils and in our peatlands. And I'm gonna be speaking quite a bit today about peatlands. Canada is home to a tremendous amount of peat and there's some really important areas. These peatlands have literally accumulated carbon over millennia, over thousands of years. It is this slow accumulation of peat and it doesn't really decompose because it's in this right condition. So it's sitting there and it's been storing carbon. And that's why it's accumulated for such a long time. And that's why there's so much of it. Canada has a vast amount of carbon stored in these ecosystems. And so now for the first time, really know at 250 meter resolution where, this, where that carbon is. And it allows us to ask important questions of those places that might be protected or how do we manage our, our important ecosystems to continue to store that carbon to the future, to ensure that it's not emitted into the atmosphere, that that would actually accelerate future climate change. And in turn, how we might begin to enhance that sequestration to draw more and more 
of that carbon out of the atmosphere and into our ecosystems and be a critical pathway towards re reducing our emissions reductions to a net zero future in Canada. I'd say with 405 petagrams, 405 billion tons of carbon, that is not only an opportunity, but it's a tremendous responsibility on a global stage. This is a massive amount of carbon that needs to be protected, conserved, not only in terms of our emissions reductions target in Canada, and certainly emissions from the land sector, as we know globally, is a very important pathway. And that is something we need to be mindful of here at home in terms of our own targets and emissions reductions, but also what that might mean in terms of stewarding the global climate and the responsibility that we have for some of the largest carbon sinks in the world. Okay, looking ahead at some of the key regions in our analysis. One kind of alluded to here, and I think in many ways um, is a globally significant carbon storage area is that of the Hudson and James Bay lowlands. This ecozone, this band of peat, largely in Northern Ontario, but extending westward into Manitoba, stores as much as 44 billion tons of carbon in that region alone. We need to be mindful of the protection and stewardship of that carbon in that that amount of carbon, if emitted in the atmosphere, could be a major driver of global climate systems. And so that is absolutely an area that we need to be deliberately working to protect, conserve, to be working alongside indigenous communities to steward that carbon as they have been stewarding it for literally thousands of years. That pattern of peat also exists across the country, extending westwards through Manitoba and into Nunavut and the NWT, Northwest Territories. Those peatland ecosystems really are an important global store of carbon right through our north. Finally, on the west coast in coastal BC, we, can ex we see a major amount of carbon in terms of the tallest forest certainly in North America, but in parts of, in many parts of the world. That, those coastal forests, and it actually comes back to, remember I was speaking about the LIDAR early on in the conversation, that three-dimensional LIDAR allows us to estimate the forest height and drives these results in terms of what we see in the rainforest of BC, right through not just the, the temperate rainforest zone, but right up and down the coast in terms of the important forest ecosystems that exist in that region of the country. So we know without a doubt that there's a, a very important role for Canada in terms of stewarding this ecosystem carbon and the responsibility that we have in terms of protecting, stewarding and managing that carbon into the future. WF Canada in response to this analysis, which is now available publicly through a peer-reviewed, or it's in the midst of peer review, actually just recently accepted in the Journal of uh, Biological Geochemical Cycles, is available publicly along with the data set. And so we certainly want that information, that knowledge to be widely available. The recommendations that we made derived from those results really, first and foremost, put forward this idea that we absolutely need to avoid the conversion and degradation of these important ecosystem carbon stores. We cannot afford to see these large amounts of carbon emitted to the atmosphere. Our pathway to net zero, our global hope to get to 1.5 degrees Celsius, that would be in serious jeopardy if we start to see 
these important carbon storage areas turned into carbon sources. So we need to be working actively as best as possible to avoid the important the degradation and conversion of those carbon stores. There's a couple of mechanisms to do that. First is the role of protected and conserved areas. Canada has great uh, ambition right now towards our protected areas. I mentioned that 17% goal is, is part of the Convention of Biological Diversity. We've actually committed globally as part of the High Ambition Coalition to be getting to 25%. This is a now a new national target, 25% protection by 2025, as well as 30% protection by 2030. That is a near doubling of our protected areas in Canada. And so that's going to be a major venture. And we need to make sure that as we reach those area-based conservation targets, that we are, in fact, protecting the right places, those places that have the greatest value, both in terms of fighting the loss of biodiversity, including for at-risk species in Canada, of which there are now more than 700 at-risk species, but as well, those important carbon storage areas that we've just discussed today. I should note critically that the carbon storage areas that we've seen across this country are on indigenous territories of, of indigenous peoples from coast to coast to coast. And so the conservation actions that we take first and foremost need to be empowering and um, providing um, opportunities to uh, build and strengthen indigenous culture in terms of indigenous governance and indigenous rights. That needs to be front and center in all that we do. Um, and that's that's true, certainly, and through the role of protected and conserved areas, and 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 in, in particular the role of indigenous protected and conserved areas, which is which are going to be such an important part of the conversations uh, towards those twenty five and thirty percent protection goals I just spoke about. In addition to formal protection, we need to look at ecosystem um, or the the impact assessment process, and and this is true. Um, at all jurisdictions, both federally, but at the provincial and territorial level as well. Our environmental assessment process needs to look at the full life cycle and the emissions of pr proposed projects, including from the land sector, to evaluate how proposed developments might impact our emissions targets and our ability to get there. So that needs to be done as part of the uh, federal uh, sorry, uh, the, the federal strategic environmental assessment process, um, this was identified as an important area. And so we're seeing some good progress there under the Impact Assessment Act, uh, but needs to be mirrored at uh, the provincial and territorial uh, jurisdiction level as well. Managing our, these high carbon ecosystems uh, is critically important. Our forests, our wetlands and developing policies and programs that actually put carbon storage and carbon sequestration as a management objective uh, is uh, needs to be top of mind. Moving forward, and, and this is, is, is so important, we have provided this national assessment, right, and an overview of where ecosystem carbon exists, but we need to continue to monitor and measure that ecosystem carbon to evaluate the progress that we're making across our conservation actions, our conservation strategies, and supporting guardians programs, um, especially indigenous peoples, community-led uh, monitoring and measurement of that ecosystem carbon is so important so that we can actually evaluate whether the conservation strategies, those actions that we're taking are achieving the conservation goals that we have. Investing in those systems and building upon what I think is quickly becoming an internationally recognized guardians program in Canada is an important opportunity. 
looking ahead with two other uh, recommendations. One is creating new financial mechanisms, including market mechanisms to provide sources of revenue that would incentivize the stewardship and protection of those important, important carbon stores is so important that we actually have market tools that would bring revenue, including especially directly to local communities on the ground, such that we have the tools and resources to, to take on this important protection um, is, is top of mind for many of us. WF Canada is in the midst now of actually bringing together a roundtable conversation to, to, to discuss what are those financial mechanisms and, and how can we look at things like impact investment and green bonds um, to, to really provide um, a new magnitude of investment in stewardship and protection of these important carbon storage areas and supporting direct revenue at the community level. And finally, a clear framework for the reporting of those emissions internationally. Canada every two years, or every annually rather, submits to um, the UNFCCC, our National Inventory Report on the emissions right across the country. And this is rolled up province and territory and done um, internationally. Um, and as part of that, not only do we need to be more granular in our measurement, but also in terms of our understanding of the emissions from these important carbon stores, especially for those important peatlands that I had mentioned early on. Right now, peatlands are inadequately captured in our um, in accounting in terms of reporting, and there's, there's certainly an opportunity there for improvement. Okay. So what do these findings mean for WF Canada in our work? We brought forward a couple of recommendations there and many of them are areas of work that we are actively um, developing if not implementing right now. Uh, the first of which is in terms of how the carbon map can be used to advance protection and conserved areas and especially indigenous protection and conserved areas or what I would call IPCAs. And so we have, we've actually made uh, this information publicly available through an interactive online tool. Um, and that can be used towards the identification and establishment of new protected and conserved areas. It can be used towards evaluating those areas that have been identified to date that are in the process of being designated in some way to speak about the potential carbon storage value of those places. But in addition to that, it can be used in land use planning exercises. I'll show you just now quickly what the interactive site looks like. And I would certainly encourage you all today to, to take an opportunity and go to wf.ca backslash carbon hyphen stocks and check out this interactive tool that allows us to view, to pan, to zoom, and even select areas of interest right across the country from coast to coast. Uh, at 250 meter resolution, this is a huge data set and certainly um, warrants further exploration um, so I'd encourage you to, 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 to go to the website and, and, and take a couple of minutes to, to view that data, maybe look at areas uh, that you know or where you live. Uh, but this resource is so important in terms of our ability to take the science, this knowledge generation that we've done, to bring it forward into practice so that it can be used to inform important strategic decisions around the allocation of conservation resources towards the management and protection of that ecosystem carbon. Certainly that's top of mind for us, the role of protected and conserved areas, but there's so many different applications for this data. And um, WF Canada is actively working to support partners from coast to coast in using this type of data set. Actually today, 
we released our priority threat management project in the Wollastock St. John River in New Brunswick using for the first time the carbon map. Um, and that allowed us to identify the actually vulnerable carbon from um, that would be at risk due to future land cover change within that region. That's, that's derived from the carbon map. There's an example of how we wanna use this resource with community partners, with indigenous partners right across the country. Just before I close and we start to take questions, I, I wanna take you through one additional example, and that is of the Carbon Guardians idea and, and where we've seen, I think, a tremendous momentum in Canada in the concept of Guardians programs, and, and that's been barred from other parts of the world and had uh, great benefit, I think, both in terms of recognizing the, the, the millennia of of attention and action and stewardship of, of our of uh, indigenous peoples, uh, but also in terms of the broad benefits that those uh, programs um, have have brought forward today in terms of um, community well-being and understanding of our uh, ecological systems. And so there's two examples of project work that are underway where WF Canada is working alongside Indigenous partners and that I would say catalyze uh, the Carbon Guardians concept. The first is working alongside uh, the Mishkegawa Council um, and the seven Mishkegawa Cree nations um, in Northern Ontario. Uh, we've been working alongside our partners at McMaster University to um, further evaluate to further map and monitor ecosystem carbon in this globally significant peat area. And so this past year, we've been working alongside the Mishkegawa Council, uh, working with the team there um, to bring together community members for, for training um, around measurement of the uh, ecosystem carbon within that region towards actually doing uh, a number of peat samples so that'll be upcoming work um, related to uh, further measurement of the tremendous amount of carbon within that globally important area. Uh, I'll speak a little bit more about that in a second. In addition, uh, working with the Sepamakulu Restoration and Stewardship Society, um, the SRSS is, a, is an organization that is working with, um, I think it's eight, uh, uh, First Nations when the when the Sequoia territories uh, in the interior BC region, um, and they are working in large part in response to massive uh, forest fires that have occurred within their territory. Uh, One hundred and ninety-two thousand hectare fire, the Elephant Hill fire from back in twenty seventeen, I believe, and that fire saw the release of a large amount of carbon. It also saw, of course, um, a, you know, a, a very significant um, warming and, and heat, extreme heat this past summer. And we're currently watching um, in real time, really, um, the, the, the resulting landslides to the loss of forest cover in that region. Um, and so with ISRSS, we've been working to, to actually monitor and measure ecosystem carbon related to ongoing forest reforestation efforts and the benefit that can have for riparian systems, including for salmon bearing streams. Um, and so that, again, is an example or an area of work that through our recent experience at WF Canada really shows the importance of uh, Guardian system, uh, Guardian's programs and uh, quite excited about the opportunity and momentum of what a Carbon's Guardian's program can look like right across the country from coast to coast to coast, uh, something that could be a, certainly a, a global example. Okay, in closing, I just want to speak a little bit longer around the work that we're doing uh, with the Mishkeka Law Council in um, 
the Hudson James Bay region related to the, the training. Uh, this area, in many ways, is is the gem of the analysis in terms of what we found. That the amount of carbon here really is is jaw dropping in many ways, and the recognition of that in terms of the potential risks um, of, of, of development in the region, and knowing very well there's a regional environmental assessment that's occurring within the, within the area as well as two environmental impact assessments. That that brings to to light in many way. Um, the very real conversations that we're having in terms of where this ecosystem of carbon is vulnerable. And in turn, the work that uh, many communities and especially indigenous communities um, are doing on the ground to continue to protect and steward that ecosystem carbon. Uh, and WF Canada was very privileged to be part of a training alongside the Mishkegawak uh, Council and uh, members of the, of the at the time, I think it was six communities that were, were part of this uh, training in Timmins in September and is an example of ultimately something that we, we hope has a tremendous opportunity in the coming months in terms of advancing continued investment in uh, training and monitoring of ecosystem carbon, both in the Hudson James Bay region and beyond. Okay, so with that, I think my, my section is coming to a close and I'll pass things back to Megan to facilitate the question and answer period. Thanks, James. Um, and the questions are coming in. Uh, so great job. That was a super, you know, painting the picture of what the possibilities are here. And I like that you ended on the example of us working with Meshkegawag Council. Uh, Kathleen O'Hara asked a question about how is WWF working with communities to protect, help protect trees and soils and wetlands. And so, you know, we're a big country. And as much as I would love for WWF to be everywhere, we can't be everywhere. We've chosen some high impact areas like Southern James Bay lowlands, like Wollostock or the St. John uh, River Valley. But can you talk a little bit about how communities can use this information? I mean, it's, it's public. I said at the beginning, how can communities tap into it to figure out, well, what do we need to do in our local community? What do we need to protect? Yeah, and really that's, that's top of mind for me uh, right now in terms of actually how to mobilize this information and make sure that it's out there and available for people to use, for organizations, for governments right across the country to, to do that. And uh, the carbon storage is like the, this estimate of the total carbon pool is really the, the first uh, part of that. The second piece to it is to start to understand what of that ecosystem of carbon is vulnerable. And then for us to begin to look at a, in a really systematic way, in some cases that's through community-led land use planning, in some cases that's through um, uh, through formal uh, protected areas, systematic protected areas planning, to, to look at those areas and how we might use different management mechanisms to ensure that carbon is stored into the future. And that can include formal protection, but it also in some instances includes management. Right, right. We don't have to just put a fence around it. I mean, we can look at how are we using this landscape and how are we living on this landscape and, and what do we need to do to protect, uh, to protect through stewardship, to protect through management. That's a good point. Peter McKinnon has a question in particular about permafrost. And, and we note on this map, um, the dark where in the soils, the orange or the yellow, that the dark patches, that's where the carbon is in the soils. And his question is about permafrost regions, which I think are slightly, you know, the continuous permafrost is, is north of that. And so he's wondering if we could, if we have information about carbon in areas with permafrost and, uh, 
over the remainder of the century as, as the climate warms, are we at risk of losing that carbon, but also methane? Do we have information on that as well? Does the map cover that? So the, the map is uh, certainly part of an area of research that, that is related uh, to, to, the, to the question here. And I, I think it, it is a very real concern in terms of uh, the risk of future climate change for uh, the potential uh, emissions of ecosystem carbon from the permafrost zone. As temperatures increase, uh, that permafrost is at risk. And we already do know that Canada's Arctic region is warming at three to four times the global average. It's, it's warming faster and the, the rate of, of, of warming is, is, is much higher. And so I think generally there is concern in many parts of uh, the Arctic Circle um, of the risk of, of permafrost melt and what that might mean. Of course, the best action um, to, to avoid that is urgent action today in terms of uh, reducing our emissions generally as quickly as possible. Um, but uh, yeah, that is definitely an ongoing area of study in terms of what uh, carbon stored in our permafrost zones might become vulnerable. And that, that is an area of work that WF Canada is continuing alongside McMaster University, figuring out the climate-related risks, climate vulnerability for ecosystem carbon, the potential for feedback loops um, is certainly a top of mind for many of us. Another question I wanna ask you about the map is, um, like we, we can see where the carbon is in the biomass and the soils. And you and I both talked about, well, what about the opposite? What about actively sequestering, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it into these ecosystems? Is it as easy as, I'm not the scientist here, okay? <laughs> Is it as easy as, oh, hey, there's a light spot. Guess we should look at storing carbon there and through regeneration and restoration. Like, is it that simple or is this another piece that we have to do with this mapping? Yeah, so I said that was, it's a complementary piece and WF Canada is actually in the midst of working on a national restoration potential analysis, one that's underway right now um, that begins to look at some of the kind of more degraded or, or human impacted landscapes across the country um, to identify those opportunities for investment in, uh, in restoration and regeneration activities. Uh, it isn't necessarily as cut, as cut and dry to say those places now that are low in ecosystem carbon would have the greatest potential. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we also wanna do, I think this is true for all nature-based climate solutions, is that wherever possible, we need to be trying to optimize our investment in conservation actions that have benefit, not only from the climate change mitigation side of the equation, but also from a biodiversity perspective. We need right. to be bringing hand in hand the biodiversity and carbon conversation. Um, so in generally, I say there's kind of three major categories in terms of how we look at, at carbon. There's the tremendous carbon sinks right now, right, that have sequestered and are storing. Um, and that's really what we're speaking about today, the carbon reserve and how we prevent that emission to the atmosphere, right? So that's the first is avoid conversion of those places. Second is how do we begin to manage or enhance the future carbon sequestration of those places, right? So that it continues to draw carbon from the atmosphere and really becomes an active tool to meet our emissions reductions goal. This is moving beyond avoiding conversions to actually getting into active carbon removal. And then third is investing in some cases integrated ecosystems as part of that, that journey to future sequestration to bring back those ecosystems. Um, one piece in an area that I should mention uh, over and above what we've done here terrestrially is when we look at active sequestration rates, uh, it's actually blue and coastal carbon ecosystems mm -hmm. that have very, very high active sequestration rates. And so that's a complementary piece of work that WF Canada is developing right now. 
looking at our, our, our eelgrass, looking at our kelp forests to understand the very high rates of carbon sequestrations that we see in those ecosystems. Right, because this is only terrestrial that we're looking at, obviously. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Well, you used um, the word investment couple of times. And uh, we have a question from Graham Campbell about uh, cost estimates for these kinds of actions that we'd be advocating for. Um, and, and James, we did do some costing around species recovery uh, in Wolostok with uh, uh, something called priority threat management, where we can actually cost out what would it take to uh, bring back these species. But can yep. we do something similar for carbon? It's a good question. Um, certainly, CBD. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very good question, right? In terms of return on investment here, and which actions that we we take can deliver the greatest benefit. What we generally know is uh, there's a mitigation hierarchy here, right? That we start with protect what you've got, manage what you have, and then begin to build back what's been degraded. And I think that's so important, and why this carbon storage analysis is so topical and so timely today is the recognition of this huge amount of carbon that Canada is stewarding and that the the peril it's a, it's a two side like it's a very thin line there is a peril here if we're not mindful of that of what emissions that might mean into the atmosphere but also what opportunity there is in terms of actually driving forward and reaching our, 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 our climate change and emissions reduction targets through better stewardship, better protection of that ecosystem carbon. Right, okay, thanks. I've got, uh, I've got some technical questions for you here, James. Um, Brian Tracy uh, was asking, he points out um, that Canada is responsible for 1.5 global GHG emissions based on the latest NIR national inventory. Uh, so when you say we're not accounting peat accurately, what are you saying there when you say we're not accounting for okay, peat? Okay, right. So uh, this is a question on our NIR and um, yeah. in terms of what um, what is included and what's not. And so Right now, I think there generally the comment is that we need to make our ecosystem uh, accounting from a, an emissions perspective more comprehensive, both in terms of looking at our forests, but expanding that to also look at our, at our peat ecosystems. And that means that, yes, I think we'll have a better understanding of the emissions from uh, some of these sectors, including the forest sector, but mm -hmm. also that we might be underestimating the the carbon sink, right? So that is your point yeah. there that, uh, you know, in terms of like by including the peatlands, would it, might it be favorable for us in, in our accounting? And that may be the case, but right now we're not accounting for it. So we don't actually know the answer to that question. Right, right. Okay, thanks. Um, question about our green side of the of the map here, forest biomass. Uh, Dame Barry um, thanks us for sharing the fascinating work. And what do we know about carbon storage in old growth forests versus forests that are regularly or have been harvested? And I suspect that's a relationship between the green side and the orange side. It absolutely is, right? And that uh, forest carbon, including from the boreal zone, is, is not just the above ground side, but it's, it is on the in our soils as well. And th so this is a big conversation in many parts of the country related to the forest policy and, and how do we manage our forests um, and uh, how do we manage our forests in a way that have greater carbon benefits. Um, there is absolutely, without a doubt, um, an important carbon store in our old growth forests, right? And 
the carbon stored in those systems as they become harvested, it's very difficult to replicate that. So uh, the concept of uh, irrecoverable carbon, I think is at the top of mind for many, which is that if we do harvest old growth forests, or in some cases are more mature forests, that is possible over very long time periods to get it back. But in terms of the time periods that we're working in within now, 50 years, that 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 is quote irrecoverable. Mm-hmm. So when we look at managing our forests, we, we look at natural disturbance cycles, we look at the role of fires, we look at the role of harvesting, and we look at the regeneration that our forest ecosystems require. And in some cases, forest uh, ecosystems would kind of grow back over some would say between 50 and, and 70 years. And so there is a role of active management of our forests, but I think we need to be very mindful increasingly now between managing our forests for some would say multiple co-benefits, managing our forests for timber, but also managing our forests now for increasing carbon sequestration and managing our our forests also for the tremendous ecological and cultural values they might have. And that really is a continuation of a policy conversation related to forest management in Canada that's been evolving over 50 years. Um, but I think increasingly we're seeing that um, you know, become a top of mind for many. I like it. I like it. Um, Brianna's asking, uh, Brianna Jones is asking about uh, ranching and management and grasslands in the prairie pothole region. And uh, they point out when, when you look at the map, both the orange and the green, it's a lot lighter in color in both soil and plant biomass carbon storage. So what do we know there? What, what is this telling us? Right. Well, yes. So I think you do. Um, you do have an eye for a for a result here, which is that certainly from a vegetation perspective, um, we're seeing lower um, carbon values in in some of the prairie regions. But it's not it's not only true to the prairies. It's true in um, those landscapes that have actually seen a higher rate of of of, of change um, from our human our human actions. That's also true here in southern Ontario and southern Quebec. Um, and so that that is consistent with what we've seen in many cases of degradation and use. Um, the the prairie grassland ecosystems are amongst the most heavily imperiled ecosystems in North America, right? I've actually seen a rate of decline of more than eighty percent since the turn of the twentieth century, um, and so that that parallels, if not exceeds, the rate of conversion of the Amazonian rainforest. And so that I think the result that we see here. Is, is similar to that is that those those native grassland ecosystems that were that you know would extend right to many of the prairie provinces have been in many places uh, heavily uh, impacted. So this is the distinction again between the stock, which I think has been depleted in some of those areas, versus right. the opportunity for additional sequestration through ongoing restoration and management activities. And and in this case, you have a de- uh, degraded stock, but the opportunity there for additional sequestration through investment in management and through an investment in restoration activities, I think is, is, is a big one. And so I think increasingly, we're going to start to see that in, in many parts of the conversation related to the agricultural sector in Canada. And James, I mean, all ecosystems are different. Uh, it takes longer for a tree to grow than, uh, you know, some marshland plants. What, how difficult would it be in grasslands? In the prairies, sorry. Right. In terms of uh, reforestation? Restoration. Uh, restoration, no, restoration yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think there's going to be a, a really uh, dedicated effort. And I would be hopeful to see broad scale uh, restoration activities 
through that region. It is a globally important region. The, the native prairie glasslands in Canada are certainly significant from a continental scale. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that there is a, a lot of opportunity there in terms of investment okay. in broad scale restoration activities. Okay, thanks. Um, Helen Gerson has a question that I don't think we have the answer to. Um, they're wondering uh, if we've looked at the amount of peat exported from Canada and how peat exports could be regulated. I, I put out there that maybe this is a question for Canada 2020 to tackle. But uh, James, do you know of organizations that are working on that aspect of uh, peat preservation, peat protection? Sure. Yeah, so that is not something that we quantified specifically in our analysis, is the, the, the potential emissions from peat uh, harvest and extraction and, and the role of the export market there, but certainly uh, it, it is part of the conversation. Um, but uh, no, I, I can't say that I can quantify it. Yeah. Do you know of other groups that are doing it? I, I can't think of any. Yeah, I, I'd say it's an emerging conversation, one yeah, that I think okay. has been uh, greater purchase in maybe some other parts of the world and places like Scotland in particular, right. um, but where there are elements of that conversation and, and how uh, commercial peat harvest uh, can be managed to be ensuring the continued sequestration of that ecosystem carbon. And if anybody has anything to contribute to that, uh, that question, feel free to pop it in the chat. Um, James, I'm going to wrap up with um, what I think is a really exciting question. <laughs> and that is, you know, I said at the outset, that this idea of protecting for carbon, like that's a really, it's kind of a mind blowing concept here. We're doing something really new thinking about this. How ready are we for that conversation? Are you, where is it picking up? Is it making sense? Are policymakers responding to it? Are they scratching their head and saying that sounds too wacky? Are they embracing it? Like, how possible is this? I think it's become a really mainstream idea. I think that um, over the last year, and it, perhaps even the last couple of months, that this is something that has really gained a lot of purchase. When we look at our protected areas historically, we have not necessarily, like, this is absolutely a new idea. Right, mm -hmm. we, we haven't been protecting these places in the past, but we now know, and I think increasingly in Canada and around the world, the, um, the kind of reconciling the need for us to be directing our resources in a manner that have the greatest benefit for both mm -hmm. for the dual crisis as you framed it, that the role of our protected areas, the role of our land management in reaching our climate strategy is, is front and center in many of our minds. One of the things that I, I am so mindful of, and I think that is becoming increasingly apparent in the policy conversation in Canada, is that historically, when it comes to environmental issues, especially from conservation, we kind of looked at three major buckets. They were um, recovery of at-risk species, right? And I mentioned the 700 uh, species that are, are technically under the Species of Risk Act in Canada. Then we have a protected areas conversation, right? Which is our ambition on protected areas to get to 25%. And then we have a third conversation, which was related to climate change and what we're doing to reduce our emissions. Those are all now coming together, right? We need to be integrating those three things to be talking about them in one of the same. Otherwise, we run the risk of developing programs and policies that don't actually hit the objectives all three. And I think right now there's, there's a really uh, a growing consensus that we need to do that. And I'm seeing that more and more in the policy conversation right across the country. It's kind of happening. It absolutely is. <laughs> it's exciting. So uh, Canada 2020 attendees, 
you know, when did this come out, James? When did we launch it? Just a month ago, right? Yeah, it would have been uh, November. Uh, no, yeah, just tenth, probably maybe? just just, just yeah. over a month. Ago. Yeah. So, uh, and already we're seeing some pickup, and uh, you know, I'll say years from now, maybe months from now, whenever when you all see that uh, there's some carbon land protection in Meshkegawag territory in Southern James Bay and Hudson Bay, you'll be able to say, I attended that Canada 2020 discussion <laughs> where this was a brand new idea. And you could say, I was there when, because uh, it really is, we're really at the beginning of something, but it's, it is, like you said, it's, it's almost mainstream already. It's fantastic and inspiring. So this is what it's all about is figuring out what the solutions are so we don't have that pessimism. We can figure out what we need to do to tackle climate change and biodiversity loss at the same time. I'm pretty excited about it, that's for sure. Uh, with that, I'm gonna wrap. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for your great questions. Thanks, Anna Ganey, for the warm welcome. And thanks to Canada 2020, not just for hosting us, but for offering up this kind of post-COP discussion for all of us to share in. It's uh, been a wonderful opportunity for me and James. Thanks very much.